our Holy Father, as we come to your word today. We thank you for your word. We remember that it is sufficient, that it is inerrant, that it is inspired, that you have given it to us, that it is your very breath. And so we pray, Lord, that it would accomplish your purposes, knowing that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Use this time, Lord, to accomplish those purposes. We pray for our kids, those who are here and who are listening, those who are in the womb and may not be listening yet. We pray for their salvation. We pray that that you would see to it that seeds are planted firmly in rich, ready soil in order that in your time they may savingly believe in Jesus. And for us, Lord, for the adults here, for the parents, we pray that you would use this time to conform us to the image of Christ. Show us your heart, Lord, and teach us to pursue Christ with all we have. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 10 today. I believe John chapter 9 was our, our quickest, uh, quickest chapter that we've gone through so far. <laughs> I think we only got through it in four or five lessons, which is record time for us. John chapter 10, I got to warn you is going to be much longer. Uh, This is a very, very rich chapter. There is so much in this chapter. Uh, In fact, it's one of the most beloved chapters in all of Scripture, in all of Scripture. It's It's a chapter that people love, I think, usually for the same reason that people love the 23rd Psalm. Why do people love the 23rd Psalm? Because the 23rd Psalm gives us a picture of God being our shepherd, our good shepherd. And that image, the image of God being our shepherd, is incredibly comforting and assuring. The tone of the 23rd Psalm is that the Lord is with us, that the Lord is for us, that the Lord guides us, and that the Lord protects us through the journey of life, even through uh, the valley of the shadow of death even through perilous, dark times. One of the reasons I love this chapter is because it was this chapter that really opened my eyes to the doctrines of grace. Uh, Before I really studied this chapter, I kind of denied the doctrines of grace. I was kind of half in, half out. But once I came across this chapter, it was undeniable. Uh, And and we'll see that today by the the time we get to the end of uh, of this lesson. But the passage that we'll be looking at today, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. It's considered by some to be the only parable in John's gospel. But I think, in all fairness, uh, it would be closer to describe it, more accurate to describe it as an allegory, because it's not really like a parable. Parables have a a storyline, there's a twist, there's, there's a plot, there's a character arch, you know, things like that. And those things really aren't present in these verses. Rather, what these verses give us is a picture, a a statement, more or less, that reveals truth about true shepherds, and it reveals truth about false shepherds, true teachers and false teachers. And yet, it's also similar to parables in that it, it forced anyone who was listening and in our case, as readers, um, it forces us to really think about what Jesus is saying and why he's saying it this way. If, if any true understanding of these verses is to be reached, it requires a lot of thought. It requires a lot of meditation. And that's exactly why Jesus often spoke in parables when he was teaching the masses. We read in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, all of these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. Now, teaching in parables, or in our case today, allegory, or maybe we could call it an allegorical parable, or something like that. Teaching in parables did two things. First of all, it revealed truth. Secondly, it concealed truth. It revealed truth to those who had 
ears to hear and eyes to see, but a concealed truth from those who did not desire to understand and who had no interest in believing in Jesus or following him in faith. And so to each group, it was grace. For those with ears to hear and eyes to see, it was a beautiful story that illustrated profound truth, profound spiritual truth to those who sought understanding, but to those who did not want to believe, did not want to follow Jesus. It was less light by which they would be judged. Now, a shepherd in ancient Israel really had two primary responsibilities when it came to his sheep. His first responsibility was to feed them. And to that end, he would lead them into pastures. The second responsibility a shepherd would have, and maybe this is the, the most difficult, and yet it's, uh, I, I think, the most important aspect of the job, his second responsibility was to protect the sheep was to protect the sheep from not only wolves and other predatory creatures that would prey upon them, but also from robbers and thieves who came to steal uh, sheep at opportune times like nighttime. And this imagery would have all been very familiar to Jesus' audience. Ancient Israel did not exactly thrive when it came to um, agriculture. They didn't have you know, all these really lush, flat, green pastures uh, you know, for, for uh, raising crops. The land just didn't produce an abundant harvest because of its, its geography. And thus Israel relied on and thrived, really, at raising and pasturing livestock, especially sheep, which were very well suited for the geography and, and the diet of the land. Shepherds, therefore, because sheep were very important, livestock was important, sheep were important, Shepherds, therefore, also played a very important role in the life of ancient Israel. And these two purposes, leading the sheep or feeding the sheep and protecting the sheep, are two things that Christ came to do as well. We met one of those sheep. We met one of those sheep actually in the previous chapter, in chapter 9, when we met this man who was born blind. Why? Why was he born blind? in order that the glory of God and the hope of redemption might be illustrated in his healing and his salvation. This is a man who was weak. This is a man who was alone. By the end of the chapter, he is vulnerable. I mean, it's the worst place in the world for a sheep to be, particularly when they are surrounded by wolves like the Pharisees, false teachers. But in the end, by the end of chapter 9, the man discovered that he actually wasn't alone, but that the good shepherd was there to protect him, was there to comfort him, was there to nurture his sheep. So the point of the passage that we're going to be looking at today, chapter 10, verses 1 to 6, the point of this passage is that Christ is the true and good shepherd, and his sheep hear his voice we have to be sure, therefore, that we respond when he calls by following him alone, if we are indeed his sheep. So we'll start by looking at verse 1 to help us kind of understand the, the context and the symbolism of the significant parts of this allegorical parable. Let's look at verse 1 together. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. And let's just take a look at what we've got right there, because this kind of sets the context for what we're going to be looking at. He immediately uh, starts off with truly, truly, and that's something, by the way, he never uh, starts off something by saying. He, he, so this is a continuation of something else. This comes in the middle of something else. So we should immediately be drawn to the word you, right? The word you, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, because that tells us who Jesus is talking to. So who does you refer to? And the answer is actually very simple. It's found by doing the same thing that you do when you find a personal pronoun anywhere else. You look for the immediate antecedent noun, so in this case, we should remember that when John wrote this book, there were no chapter breaks, there were no verses uh, you know, marked off, and so thus there was nothing to designate any kind of separation between this verse and 
the previous one. So to whom was Jesus speaking at the end of chapter 9? Whom was Jesus speaking with at the, in the previous verse? He was speaking to the Pharisees. He was rebuking them. So we should notice that there are no transitional phrases that we start this chapter out with that separate what was written in the previous chapter from this chapter. And in fact, if you didn't have uh, chapter breaks, if you didn't have verses, you would have read right through chapter 9 and you'd just keep on going, which would make it very obvious who Jesus is speaking, whom Jesus is speaking to here. In this case, he's speaking to the Pharisees. So John doesn't start verse 1 off by saying after these things or uh, a little while later. No, these, these words are immediately next in the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now in order for us to, to gain some understanding of this allegorical parable, we need to understand some things about the culture of first century ancient Israel. Uh, each town would have had a common sheep pen. That is a sheep pen that was designated for, for any shepherds who came through town. Uh, a, a place where the local shepherds could, could put their sheep at night, or if a shepherd was you know, passing through the region, he could leave his sheep in this pen as well. So inside of these uh, community sheep pens, you might call it, you would usually not just have one flock, but you would have sheep from many, many many flocks all mixed in together in the, sh- in the same sheep pen. So because sheep were such an important commodity, uh, if they were in this pen, you would want them to be protected, right? So there would be high walls on the sides in order to keep predatory animals out and to also keep robbers and thieves and, and poachers out. And each pen would have had a gate, and at the gate there would have been a gatekeeper who watched over the gate, ensuring that not only did no sheep get out, Uh, but ensuring also that nobody and nothing that wasn't supposed to get in got in. So when the shepherd, uh, the next day, say the next day, they come to collect their flock, the gatekeeper would allow them in, and the shepherd would be responsible for gathering his sheep. Well, how did he do that? By calling out to them. One by one, he'd call out to them. Sheep actually know the sound of their shepherd's voice, uh, and they will not follow a shepherd that they don't know. Uh, but the shepherd wouldn't just call out in general for his sheep. He would uh, often have to call them out by name, like, hey, come on, Pokey, or uh, it's time to get going, Crooked Tail, or Shaggy, let's go graze some pastures today, you know, whatever. The shepherd, the point is, the shepherd would not only be known by his sheep, but he knew each one of his sheep individually as well, and he knew them by name. Now, this is a picture of our relationship to God. And it's one of the points that Jesus is going to make in this story, but this is beautiful imagery that the Old Testament commonly drew from when describing the relationship that exists between God and his people. It's not just Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is, you know, the most commonly known one probably, but it's all over the place in the Old Testament. But God didn't just use this illustration of sheep and shepherds to illustrate the relationship that exists between himself and his people. He also used it to describe the false teachers and leaders of Israel. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel wrote an entire chapter in which he described ancient Israel as a flock that belonged to God and yet had been used. They'd been abused. They'd been spiritually abandoned and consumed by false teachers who weren't serving the interests of the sheep, who weren't acting in obedience to God at all. No, they were only serving their own interests by being shepherds. They were false shepherds. Just some snippets from that chapter. Verses 1 to 3 says this, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep 
without feeding the flock. Verse 5, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field, and were scattered. Verses 8 to 10, as I live, declares the Lord, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. God was not just going to leave his people to be consumed, to be devoured by these false teachers. And so here's the promise that God makes in verses 12 and 13. He says, as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is scattered, when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them back to their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. This promise is reiterated and kind of clearly stated, clarified in verses 15 and 16 where he says, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. The prophets commonly used this imagery of sheep and shepherds in describing all kinds of things, including his relationship to his people. So when Jesus gives this allegorical parable, we should understand that he's not only following kind of a tradition of sorts, uh, you know, falling in line with the long testimony of, of prophets who used that imagery of, of sheep and shepherds in their teachings and in their writings. But Jesus, when he gives this story, this allegorical parable, he is also doing something very important that we must see. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of this promise that was recorded in the book of Ezekiel. So this parable cuts and chops at the very foundation of the Pharisees. Now, in our day and age, it's a really, really unpopular thing to do to criticize false teachers. Really unpopular thing. If you want to draw instant heat, if you want to draw instant criticism from people you've never met and probably never will, all you have to do is criticize someone or something like an ideology that's loved or widely accepted. I mean, the, the, the fanboys of false teachers on the internet, will, they will come for you and they will instantly label you divisive and negative. But this is uh, what J.C. Ryle had to say about that. He writes in his commentary on this passage saying, quote, Nothing seems so offensive to Christ as a false teacher of religion, a false prophet, or a false shepherd. Nothing ought to be so dreaded in the church, and if needful, to be so plainly rebuked, opposed, and exposed. End quote. And J.C. Ryle was known for doing that. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing with this parable. Now, as we consider some of the symbolism here, we should note that there are a few different understandings out there. There almost always are. When it comes to parables, there are two kinds of interpretations, right? There are right interpretations and and wrong interpretations, but it's only possible for one interpretation to be correct. Well, how do you increase the odds that you get the correct interpretation? you ensure that you're understanding not only the historical context, but you also want to look at the parable in light of the context in the text, right, in John's book. So let's just take the imagery one piece at a time here. Given the context, knowing who Jesus is speaking to, and that this is just falling on the heels of that last verse of chapter 9, given the context, who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the Pharisees. So that's who he's calling thieves and robbers. The Pharisees, or or, or any false teacher really. But in this instance, it's referring specifically to the Pharisees. Now some have argued that the sheep pen represents heaven. But let me ask you this, are there going to be thieves and robbers that can get into heaven to steal? No. 
So it's not heaven. Uh, It's also been argued that the sheep pen represents the church. Are there thieves and robbers in the church? There are, but the sheep get led out of the pen. Are we being led away from the church, out of the church? We're not. So this, is, you know, this isn't a holding cell that we're going to someday depart from. So, so what is the, sheep, uh, the sheep's pen? What does it represent? It represents, in this instance, Judaism, in which some of the elect were to be found. In, in this context, but generally speaking, it's any system that is incapable in and of itself of providing salvation. Uh, finally, what is the door? The door is just the right way in and the right way out. It's the legitimate way in and the legitimate way out. What's the wrong way or the illegitimate way? Coming over the walls, trying to sneak in, trying to get in stealthily. So the door represents a true understanding of the Scriptures and what the Old, uh, Old Testament Scriptures teach specifically about the Messiah. The Pharisees were false teachers who had abused and had misused and had consumed the sheep. We saw that in chapter 9, didn't we? When they, when they totally spiritually abused the man who was formerly blind. So the, the Pharisees, as thieves and robbers, they did not come through the door that entered the sheep's pen. They entered in an illegitimate way, the way that thieves and robbers enter into a sheep's pen to abuse sheep. A thief is somebody who steals, but a thief uses stealth. A thief uses deception. They don't want to be caught. They don't want to be seen. They try to do their business without being really noticed. A robber, on the other hand, is somebody who basically does the same thing, but they don't try to use stealth. They don't try to use deception. What do they use? They use force. They use violence. They abuse. So by using these terms, thieves and robbers, to describe the Pharisees, Jesus is exposing the impure motives and methods of these false teachers, these Pharisees. See, false teachers, false shepherds can always be identified by these things, by their false motives, by their impure methods, and by their impure messages. All of these things together present the Pharisees as having illegitimate authority over the people. Because what were their motives? Their their motive was personal gain. What were their methods? As we saw in the previous chapter, they were more than willing to spiritually abuse the sheep in order to maintain their status, in order to maintain their power and their position over the people. And what was the message of the Pharisees? Law. Law, law, law. And not even a correct understanding of the law. See, any shepherd who isn't pointing the sheep to which they've been assigned to placing faith in Christ alone is a false and illegitimate shepherd. Richard Philip notes in his commentary on John, he says, quote, The fact that so many Christians select a church based on factors such as the style and quality of the music, the wealth or size of the congregation, the personality of the minister, or the fun and excitement of the service, rather than the godliness of the shepherds and the soundness of the teaching, is perhaps the greatest cause for alarm in the church today. End quote. Now, if you pay attention to headlines especially ones that relate to Christianity, especially ones that relate to Christianity in America, you probably realize that there was another, what I call, rock star pastor that was exposed this month as a fraud. He had been having an affair uh, for months, um, unbeknownst to to his wife, obviously. Uh, This is a pastor who has been all over all of these very worldly, very popular TV talk shows, and who has so many celebrity followers, I don't think I could even name all of them. Uh, He's spent years and years building his brand, building his reputation as somebody who is cool and who is just accepting of people. He's been pushing a false gospel for years, and he spent his whole career making much of himself. 
And with all that said, if you recognized all these things about him, you probably wouldn't have been too surprised to find out that he had been an unrepentant sin, a, a grievous unrepentant sin for months. But this man, this rock star pastor, isn't just an isolated case study, unfortunately. There are many pastors whom I would refer to as rock star pastors, and the thing that makes them easy to spot is that they aren't pointing people to Christ as much as they are trying to draw a crowd to themselves. It's about image, and it's the image of the pastor trying to draw people to him because he looks so cool. Look at those cool, stylish jeans with all the bling and all the thick stitching that he's wearing. Man, I want to be like that guy. That's how you spot a rock star pastor. That's how you spot somebody who is at least trying to make too much of themselves. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. That's exactly why they were called thieves and robbers. But note the contrast in verse 2. Let's continue looking at verse 2. He says, But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So the true shepherd doesn't scale the walls. The true shepherd doesn't come in in an illegitimate, unauthorized way. The true shepherd enters by the door. A true shepherd has a humble and proper understanding of Scripture. Their motives are pure. They aren't out to gain power or uh, popularity. They, They don't want an audience for themselves. Their methods are in line with Scripture. They want to serve as they've been instructed in Scripture to serve. If you're familiar with something called the regulative principle of worship, uh, you understand the importance of this. But their message is always, a true shepherd's message always, always, always points the sheep to repent and to believe in Jesus. Not to follow the pastor, but to follow the true shepherd. And of course, no pastor does this perfectly. I certainly don't. But Jesus, the true shepherd, the true shepherd of God's flock, the good shepherd, He does all of these things perfectly. And that's who the next portion, uh, that's who this next portion of the parable is about. Jesus is talking about himself here. He's contrasting himself as the true shepherd with the Pharisees who were false shepherds. Let's look at verses three to five. He says, To him, the true shepherd, to him the doorkeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not know, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. As I read this and studied this, I was reminded of an experience I had when I was in Moldova uh, on a mission in 2005 when uh, there there was a lot of pasture in Moldova and uh, there were shepherds out there. And so at one point, um, you know, we got to actually go out and meet the shepherd and and talk to him uh, through a translator. We got to see him at work. But one of the things that I uh, noticed while I was out there is that sheep are very, very easily frightened. Uh, As soon as I would get close enough to touch one, they'd start to move away. And it's not just because I look scary. Some, Some of the other missionaries who were with me were trying to do the same thing. They did not want to be in the presence of anyone that they did not know. Sheep don't like strangers, generally speaking. As animals who graze on grass, they don't have sharp teeth. As animals that often have to scale very steep, rocky hills, they have hooves instead of claws. All this is to say that sheep have only one line of defense against thieves and robbers and predators that would harm them. Their only line of defense is to flee is to flee. Sheep will not respond to the voice of someone who is not their shepherd. They will respond to the voice of their shepherd, however. 
Over time, they learn to identify the voice of their shepherd, even among many, many other simultaneous voices. And when they hear the voice of their shepherd, they come. Jesus says that the true shepherd enters the right way, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I want you to notice something here. He does not call sheep that are not his. So this starts with the assumption that there are some sheep in the pen that are his, and there are some sheep in the pen that are not his. But this is an amazing thing to consider if you think about it. If you have put faith in Christ, it's because he has called you, specifically you, by name, individually you. Notice that there's no indication that any of his sheep refuse to come. It's because this isn't referring to the general gospel call. There's a general gospel call that goes out to everyone, and then there's the sovereign effectual calling of God that goes to each individual sheep that is his. Notice back in chapter 7, for example, Jesus cries out to the masses in general. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That is the general call to salvation. Notice that in that passage, in, that, in what he says there, he does not refer to anybody by name. So contrast that with Jesus calling the disciples at the beginning of the book. He called them by name. And they dropped everything to follow him. Consider what we read in Luke chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. It says this, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. How did Jesus know Zacchaeus' name? Because Zacchaeus is one of his sheep. And because Jesus, the good shepherd, knows his sheep by name, and he calls them by name, and they follow him. That's exactly what Jesus says here. And this is going to be demonstrated even more powerfully in the next chapter. In the next chapter, Jesus will visit the tomb of Lazarus, and he'll call out to him. Lazarus has been dead for days, but Lazarus emerges from his tomb instantly. James Montgomery Boyce notes of this part of the passage. He says, quote, This is the doctrine of election, which is so prominent in John's gospel. It is not liked, it is not often preached, but it is in Scripture and must be preached, above all by anyone who is serious about expounding this gospel. For what is the central point of Christ's parable? Election. That is the point. It is that God has given some sheep to the Lord Jesus and that Jesus comes to the door of the sheepfold and, knowing his sheep in advance, calls to them and leads them out, end quote. So who follows Jesus today or anytime? Who legitimately follows Jesus? Those who are called by name and only those who are called. Paul explains this more fully in Romans chapter 8, where he writes this. This is called the golden chain of salvation. That's what the Puritans called it. It's a great name for this passage. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So here we find that word, called. Same word and same concept. This isn't the general call that goes out to everyone. This is the sovereign, particular, effectual, irresistible calling of God. Who is called according to this passage in Romans chapter 8? Not everyone, only those who are predestined. It, 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 uh, it doesn't say that everybody receives this call. Only those who are predestined get called. Who are predestined? Those who are foreknown. Notice that Paul doesn't say that God foreknew who would believe and who wouldn't. 
No, Paul isn't talking about what the elect would do. He's talking about God knowing the elect themselves. He's not saying that God foreknew who would believe. He's saying he knew who would be called. He foreknew those who are predestined. See, when the Bible speaks of, of knowing somebody, like in the term foreknew, it's a term of intimacy, of love, and of covenant and companionship. Paul's saying that the people God set his heart on in eternity past, those whom God loved with a covenant love from eternity past, were predestined. They were called. Who's justified? Only the called. Only the called. Notice that everyone who is called is justified. So this is certainly not talking about the general gospel call that goes out to everyone. This is talking about God calling his elect by name. Only those who are called are justified. Everybody who is called is justified. And again, this is the sovereign, effectual, irresistible calling of God. When the sheep whom the Father has given to the Son are called, they respond by coming to the Son in faith and following Him. If you are in Christ, if you have truly believed and are truly following Him in faith, this is, in a very real sense, a picture of your salvation. It's a picture of your, your conversion to Christ. Why did you become a Christian? Because God the Father gave you to Jesus. And when the time came, you were called. You specifically. You by name, individually. He called your name and you followed. He called you because he foreknew you. He called you because in love he predestined you individually to follow Jesus. He foreknew you and all who are foreknown by him are called by him and justified by him and in the end glorified by him. This is just a beautiful truth for us to wrap our minds around. It's a beautiful thing to know that Jesus knows us even before he calls us by name. He knows our sins. He loves us anyway. He bore our sins on, on Calvary. He knows our struggles. He set his love on us anyway. He's perfectly aware of every single failure and fault that we have. And yet he predestined us. He's not persuaded in the least by any of those things to not call or lead his sheep all that the Father has given to him will come to him, which is exactly what Jesus said back in chapter 6. This is such a hated doctrine in our day, the doctrine of election, and yet it is such a beautiful and such a wonderful truth to consider that Jesus knew us by name before we came to him and that he predestined us to salvation knowing that on our own, we never would have chosen him. Nobody seeks for God. Nobody does what is good. Is loving God and seeking God good? It is. Nobody does it. Jesus is the one who's good. Jesus is the one who seeks. This doctrine of election can be found everywhere in this 10th chapter of John's gospel. And this chapter, like I said, it's, it's the chapter that really convinced me of the doctrines of grace, but this is one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. This chapter is here to get our minds off of ourselves and what we think we've done and to simply remind us to rest in the fact that God sent his only son to do for us what we couldn't and wouldn't do for ourselves, reconciling ourselves to God. And he did it for us all by grace. All regardless of our sins and our struggles and our faults and our failures. He did it all unconditionally by grace.
The true sheep are not only characterized by the fact that they follow the true shepherd when he calls them by name, they're also characterized by the fact that they will not follow a false shepherd. They won't follow strangers. They won't follow a false teacher. Now, there's something that's really just kind of difficult for us to wrap our minds around and and, uh, to describe about this, but there is... Scripture tells us there is a spiritual instinct that Christians have whereby they, they recognize when a teaching is false. They may not even understand exactly why. There's just something about it that doesn't strike them right. In the moment, something about it doesn't feel right. And this is very likely what John, by the way, was referring to when he says in his first epistle, uh, epistle second chapter, he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. When confronted with false doctrine, there's something within us that says, this doesn't sound right at all. And yet when we're presented with biblical truth, there's something within us that should say, yes, this is good and this is true. What causes this? The Holy Spirit. Abiding within us, leading us to truth, just as Jesus said he would. He's the gatekeeper in this parable. He is the one who opened the gate to the shepherd, the true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order that you and I may be drawn out and follow him. He's the one who protected you from being stolen by false shepherds before the true shepherd called you to follow him out. The final point of this allegorical parable that I think we should consider is the fact that the Sheep who follow the true shepherd are led out of the pen. They're separated from the other sheep in the pen. Now, in, in ancient Israel, there, there may be hundreds, hundreds of other sheep, but Jesus would lead his sheep out. They're separate. That reminds us that Jesus has led every single one of us out of something. Something that we're no longer a part of. Maybe it's just the world. Uh, Secular humanism. Uh, Maybe he led you out of a cult. Maybe he led you out of materialism. Maybe he led you out of a lukewarm, uh, you know, Jesus is my homie kind of faith. Very early on in my walk with Christ, uh, I turned on TBN. Whoops. Shouldn't have done that. But my pastor asked me at the time uh, what I'd been watching and what I'd been reading, and I told him. And so he warned me about that, the, the, the false teachers that were on TBN. That's Jesus leading me away through that pastor, warning me and explaining to me what was wrong with what they were teaching. That's the Lord leading me away from those false teachers. Whatever he called you out of, he led you out of. In one way or another, he not only ordains the ends, he also ordains the means to the ends. Whatever he called you out of, he led you out of. He didn't drive you from behind with a whip. No, he walked before you. He led you. He protected you from thieves and robbers and wolves and other predators who would have threatened to harm you or to consume you. Like the good shepherd that he is, he called you by name. He protected you, and he led you not to poisonous plants and pastures that would harm you, but to the lush green pastures of salvation that are open only to his sheep. He led you away from anything that would have prevented you from feasting on his pastures of salvation. All of this, by the way, summarizes exactly what we saw back in chapter 9, doesn't it? It helps us understand chapter 9 in a deeper way. And it all comes full circle, actually, in the next verse of our passage today. Let's look at verse 6 together. John says, This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. That's judgment. The Pharisees didn't understand. They, They didn't want to understand but what have we just learned about discernment? Right? We've, what, we, what have we learned about true sheep? They discern both truth and error, and they follow Christ. 
these men cannot discern truth. And in fact, they don't want to because it would cost them their power and their position. So here we see that those who are not Christ's sheep do not follow him. They do not discern his voice. Later in this chapter, Jesus is going to say to these same Pharisees, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Let me say that again. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. That's the verse that convinced me that the doctrines of grace are true. Because the way that I thought is, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. See, it would be an entirely different thing if Jesus said, uh, you know, you're, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. No, they don't understand because they don't have ears to hear. They don't follow because they don't believe. They don't believe because they are not his sheep. They have not been given to Christ by the Father. What about you? Has Christ called you by name? He has, if you've been led away from secular humanism or any worldly ideology or philosophy or false religion or system of idolatry, and you are following him now. He called you by name. It's exactly what he said he does. Now, you might find yourself today wondering if Christ would call you, or maybe you're, you're doubting that he would call you. The question is then, do you want him to call you? Do you even care? Because if you do, he has. He has. Those who aren't his sheep don't care for one second. They're not even paying attention. They don't care if they're called. In fact, they don't want to be called by him. But you, if you have never believed in Jesus, if you have never truly followed him, do you even want to be called by him? If your answer is yes, then you have been. You have been called by him. And if that's you, I urge you to respond eagerly with the eager joy of Zacchaeus by leaving whatever sheep's pen you've been in, whatever tree you've climbed into like Zacchaeus did, and to come down and to follow Jesus in faith and obedience. God made this promise to his people in Ezekiel 34. In verses 23 and 24, he says this. He says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is a promise, friends. This is a promise that David's offspring would be the shepherd of all of God's people. And that promise is fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is the one master shepherd, the one true shepherd, the one good shepherd, and his sheep hear his voice. So let us learn to discern his voice by investing time in reading and studying his word, knowing that by doing that, the voices of the false shepherds will become even more apparent. May we be sure that we respond when he calls, by following him wherever he may lead us, knowing that wherever he does lead us, it's a place that he has prepared for us, and it is for our greatest good. May we know Christ as our shepherd, each of us, each of us individually. May we know Christ as our shepherd and as his sheep. May we rest in the tender love and sovereign care of our shepherd, the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it strengthens us, 
Thank you for the way that it turns our thoughts and our affections to Christ. We thank you for the way that it humbles us and teaches us that Christ alone is Lord of lords and King of kings. He alone gets all the glory. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful sheep, sheep who follow you, sheep who obey your voice, sheep who yield to your will in order that Christ may be glorified in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.